This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Why, hello there. Good morning. It's Thursday, November the 23rd, 23, 2023. <laughs> it's now with Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. <laughs> Trying to do something different on this American Thanksgiving, and I stumbled all over myself. November 23, 20. Hopefully that's not a harbinger of doom for the next couple of hours. Coming up on the show today, the Parapan American Games are underway in Santiago, Chile. Community reporter Nathan Clement is on the grounds with an update. The buzz around all the light we cannot see continues. Andrika Delanero will preview an exclusive interview with actors Aria Mia Laberte and Louis Hoffman. And hundreds of tenants are on rent strikes in Toronto. Don Dickinson shares some of the background in her preview of McLean's magazine. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. But let's start with the top story of the day, and it's all about the news that you can use. Canada is welcoming European Union leaders for a two-day summit in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Lori Paris has the agenda. The war unfolding in Gaza between Israel and Hamas militants is expected to feature prominently in the two-day EU-Canada summit, particularly after the two sides announced a truce for hostages deal on Wednesday. European Union officials say a declaration supporting a two-state solution that will result in a sovereign Palestinian state existing alongside Israel will likely be a significant part of the summit's joint statement. The ongoing war in Ukraine is expected to be a big part of discussions too. Trade, climate and energy are also on the agenda as Atlantic Canada angles to become a major supplier of hydrogen fuel to European markets, particularly Germany. Laurie Paris, the Canadian Press. Coming back to a Canadian story and a Canadian health story, Health Canada is lifting a ban on blood donations from people who lived or travelled in the United Kingdom, Ireland or France for long periods of time in the 1980s and 1990s. Emily Javesky explains. The decades-long rule was a precaution to prevent the transmission of mad cow disease through blood transfusions from people who had a higher likelihood of being exposed. Canadian Blood Services says almost 30 years of research and surveillance has made it clear that people who weren't eligible to donate under the travel criteria can do so safely. The news comes hours after Health Canada authorized Hema-Quebec, which manages the blood supply in Quebec, to remove the same ban. The change takes effect across Canada on December 4th. Emily Jovesky, the Canadian Press. Moving over to the cost of living file, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem is defending his approach to fighting inflation. Macklem says the central bank is walking a tightrope. We are trying to balance the risks of over and under tightening. If we do too much, we risk making economic conditions unnecessarily painful for everyone. If we do too little, Canadians will continue to endure the harm of inflation and will likely have to raise our interest rate even higher. Macklem offered some historical perspective. The lesson from the 1970s is that 
fighting inflation half-heartedly and living with the stress, the labour strife, the uncertainty and inflation causes would be a huge mistake. The right way to respond is with a firm commitment to restoring price stability. The bank will make their next interest rate announcement in a couple of weeks, and you better believe I will share it with you as soon as it drops. And on the travel file, Montreal's airport wants to limit traffic congestion. Lisa Laporte lays out some of the measures. Gridlock on the road leading to Trudeau Airport routinely pushes passengers to get out of their vehicles and haul their bags hundreds of meters to its entrance. The Aeroport de Montréal says that by next summer, it will have set up two alternative drop-off and pick-up zones to divert car traffic from the airport's main entrance, with both served by a shuttle service. It says parking will also be free for roughly 40 minutes between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m., while a new airport parking lot with 20 2,800 spots is set to open early next year. Lisa Laporte, The Canadian Press. And Alex Smythe will bring that topic to the roundtable in about 90 minutes' time. So stay tuned for that one. Congestion around the airports. I definitely have feelings about that shuttle service. But for now, let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Wednesday, you were asked all about content. If a friend recommends a new podcast, do you listen to it? Zero percent of you said yes right away. Zero. Zippo. Donata. 25% of you said yes eventually, and 75% of you said no. I've already got enough content. Tony writes in over on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Depends on the subject matter. Fair enough. Good point by Tony. Today's topic, all about junk mail. How do you feel about receiving physical junk mail like flyers and other advertising material? I like it, I dislike it, or I don't care. This one coming from the world of my own meandering personal experience. Opened up the mailbox yesterday and it was jam-packed full of flyers and advertisements for Black Friday sales from big, small, and medium retailers alike. And you know what happened to it? It went right into the recycle bin. Didn't even make it into my apartment. Went right into the recycle bin right there next to the mailboxes on a stack of other flyers and advertisements that went right into the recycle box. My neighbors and I seem to have been on the same page. And it makes me think one thing primarily, which is, goodness gracious, what a waste of resources, what a total waste of resources, and what a total waste of money from uh, these organizations and companies. But maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just my neighbors. Maybe it's not a waste. Maybe these flyers and junk mail and coupons are something that tickles the fancy of you out there in listener land and the viewer vortex or perhaps my on-air compatriots, Laura Bain, how do you feel about junk mail, physical junk mail? Yeah, you've described a situation that I know well. I have no problem being categorical in this one. Sometimes I do, but I strongly dislike getting physical junk mail. Um, I've been in my building a few years. I keep meaning to put a sign on the inside of my bail box saying no junk. I don't know if that's going to make a difference, but it's the same as you've described. I feel like I don't really get a lot of other mail, and every couple of weeks I have to just remember to go down and move the junk mail from <laughs> my mailbox directly into the recycling bin. Um, I mean, you know, 
I guess there's an accessibility angle as well. Oh, Maybe certainly. there's some certainly. stuff in there that I might find more interesting if I could read it, but I can't. And I feel like all of the kind of sale information and all of the coupons I want are readily available digital, digitally. Yeah, although I'm not wild about uh, spam mail filling up my inbox either, so uh, my my email inbox either. So that one gets a little bit tricky as well. Alex Smythe, Laura described that moment of sort of sifting through, looking for what might actually be real mail. I did find uh, two letters in there yesterday, a birthday card from my dad, as well as a something from one of my financial institutions. But Alex, because of that, it's not only is that junk mail going right into the recycling bin, I'm actually sifting through it. I have to shake it to make sure there's no important envelopes inside. Yeah, well, I'm going to be uh, kind of the odd one out here. I actually kind of like getting the quote-unquote junk mail because I do like going through the flyers and, and being surprised what's on sale, what's being printed, <laughs> things like that. You know, I especially if it's a store that I'm interested in, I love the electronic stores. Yes, I love all yes. That. And around now, you know, even the big box retailers and the department stores, they got a bit of everything. You got the Black Friday deals. You got the pre-Christmas and holiday deals starting to come in. The certain wish list uh, flyers, I, I, it gets me a bit nostalgic, <laughs> but I agree too, Dave. There, there's a ton of them and you have to be careful that you're not having some actually important mail getting stuck in between or, or getting accidentally tossed out because it's wedged between a couple different flyers. The ones I, I dislike though, because there are quite a few I dislike, are the ones that really just don't have any effort. Like there's ones that uh, we receive around our area that is literally just someone hand wrote, written a a note and I think this has to do with like home sales or 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 like some sort of personalized service and then they just photocopied it and it's it's a, a widely distributed oh, what wire. a waste what but a it's waste just, it's just like someone's handwritten note that's been scanned and then copied like thousands of times I I, I just like that put some effort in make it flashy <laughs> make show some photos at least come on make it make it catching for the eye Alex I'm very glad you mentioned the Black Friday and like the sales component of this because I was grappling this morning with whether or not I wanted to bring a Black Friday topic into the poll because on the flip side of uh, these flyers uh, making me a little bit uh, bonkers as I'm going through my mailbox, who this Black Friday stuff is tempting. I saw a pair of running shoes that they had in my size for a super affordable price from a super uh, reliable shoe brand at a very reliable Canadian retailer. And because I clicked on it once, Alex, it's now yep. every time I open any webpage, there are those beautiful red running shoes looking me right in the face. I can only imagine for someone who has maybe a retail therapy problem, how hard a week like this might be. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And I will say, because you mentioned the digital uh, junk mail kind of equation, I much prefer having the physical like flyers than the ones that just filling up my my junk mail box on on my email. Like I, I appreciate having the tactile nature that you can actually flip through. It's more finite. It doesn't seem like you're getting bombarded every waking minute by dozens and dozens of, of flyers and, and, and advertisement emails. But 
there there is that that element to it as well with it being online you know you you're gonna see it everywhere because of those cookies are going to Ugh. save your searches and they're gonna populate everything and just you're you're gonna be overwhelmed until you actually give in and then purchase the item that's constantly being advertised to you laura maybe not to cannibalize what could be good content tomorrow are you immune to some of those digital advertisements you put you rightly pointed out the accessibility side of the physical advertising that is very not screen reader friendly or really accessible at all what about the digital side are, are you immune to the effects of this digital advertising bombarding you no i'm i'm not immune and i certainly dislike digital sort of advertising in the sense of filling up your junk box i was more thinking like um if you want to search it out but i i would agree with alex it's maybe even more annoying to to just get all this spam mail for me black <laughs> friday is a is it sort of a tool i can for things that i have maybe thought about for weeks or months we wait till black friday it's gonna go on sale but um I don't know. It oh. does take some willpower. Oh, those shoes. They might get me during the commercial break. You never know. Do, do you need <laughs> shoes, Dave? That's the question. I have beat up my current pair of running shoes pretty good. I've had them for a couple of years now, and I use them a couple times a week. They're pretty dirty. They're pretty beat up. So I, I, I do like that question, though. Do I really need them, or do I just want them? There you go, a little bit of retail advice with Laura Bain on the way out. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a ring, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Hey, if you're using one of those digital methods like email or the social media, feel free to snap a pic of the pile of junk mail you pull out of your mailbox. You know, a little bit of texture to the conversation when Alex gives you the results tomorrow. Coming up next, hundreds of tenants are on a rent strike in Toronto. Don Dickinson will share some of the background in a preview of McLean's Magazine. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Let's talk about housing. Tenants are struggling to afford rent. There is a movement on the rise, rent strikes. That's the crux of a featured article in McLean's magazine on AMI-audio. Don Dickinson is the content curator of that show. Hey, good morning, Don. Hi there, Dave. How are you? Don, I'm great. I like talking about housing. The first article is called Revenge of the Renters by Jason McBride. It touches on the story of a renter in a Toronto neighborhood. When did things start to change for this tenant and how did the strike ensue? Uh, well, you know, we think of this housing crisis as something that's come on recently, but basically it's been building for a long time. Uh, the article starts by, uh, you know, profiling this woman who is leading the strike, uh, Charlene Henry. And she said that way back in 2013, the landlord uh, then, of course, was called Real Star, and um, they had hyped up the rents by 5.5%. Uh, she at the time was quite confused because she said that 
they were in a rent-controlled building. Um, she mentions the building, 33 King. And um, she was like c completely confused because she thought, well, how can they do this? Well, there is a loophole in Ontario. Landlords can apply for what's called an above guideline increase, AGI. And to make uh, major repairs, they're allowed to increase rents substantially more. So they said that they fixed the roof and they repaired the elevators and that this, this um, repair and these uh, things that they had done justified this particular rent increase. So, of course, she went along with this thinking, okay, well, you know, it's a one-off and you know you have to be uh, reasonable and whatnot but then all of a sudden the next year they were hit again mm. with another substantial rent increase so she she says way back then and then it's just gotten worse over time and then of course recently new owners have taken over a company by the name of uh, dream unlimited which is a real estate giant. They've got $23 billion worth of assets. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're decided that, no, this has gone on long enough and they're striking. So beyond just the cost, certainly the cost is a major component of this. What are some of the other factors? Well, you know, there's a lot of other factors. Uh, you know, tenants are talking about deteriorating conditions in these buildings and uh, regular maintenance that seems to go undone. Some felt that the AGIs were simply a way for RealStar back in the day to boost the value of its assets by squeezing extra money out of the tenants. And of course, you got to remember a lot of these buildings in uh, in uh, these major cities are getting very old, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. they have to be maintained and the cost of that maintenance is substantial. So I think there's a certain obviousness to this next question, mm -hmm, Don, but mm -hmm. what risks are tenants taking from withholding their rent? Okay, well, <laughs> very simply, they can, in fact, uh, be evicted for non-payment of rent. Uh, this was a very, uh, this was very interesting. A poll conducted this March found that more than 60% of Canadians who don't own homes have completely abandoned the idea of ever buying one. Yeah. So what that leads to is it means that competition for Canada's limited rental housing market is now absolutely exploding right so these tenants are thinking okay well that's fine and dandy to require us to go along with this because of course this particular woman is, is wants the whole building to strike right but a lot of the tenants are quite fearful because they think well if they're evicted where are they going to go yeah. i mean it's, it's it's not like this is just uh you know a building or two this is basically everybody everybody yeah, the, the housing crisis is the housing crisis because you don't have a lot of options as a renter or a buyer. There's only so many places for you to go if you lose your current place of dwelling. And for 30, 40 years, Don, there has been very little investment in building rental properties. Where you typically True. would have had apartments built, it's been condo buildings, private ownership. And certainly there's a space for condos in the market, but when... I'm going to approximate a number here, but when 80 to 90% of high density buildings that are going up are condos rather than strictly rental buildings, it does create that cascading issue of a, of a rental property crunch. Exactly, Dave. You've hit it on the head. You know, there's it's just a function of availability. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of demand and very, very limited supply. Yeah. Don, let's uh, stop bumming me out by talking about the housing crisis. <laughs> let's uh, talk about... 
Maybe some changing culture at Hockey Canada. Unfortunately, it starts with some pretty negative news, but hopefully by the end, you and I can get to a little bit of optimism. The next article is a featured interview with Catherine Henderson. She very recently became the new president and CEO of Hockey Canada. This followed an alleged sexual assault case involving members of Canada's 2018 World Junior Men's Hockey Team. So, Don, that sexual assault scandal was very well covered in the media, but how did the fallout from the scandal lead to the leadership change at Hockey Canada? Well, I mean, it was pretty severe. I don't follow hockey like you follow hockey, Dave, but we all know because it was on the news all the time that the fallout was swift. It was one of those instances where, um, you know, faithful sponsors like Canadian Tire and Tim Hortons, uh, they bailed on, mm-hmm. <laughs> on Hockey Canada. The entire board of uh, directors stepped down and Sports Canada temporarily froze federal funding. Even the prime minister weighed in uh, can- uh, Canadians, he said, were right to be disgusted, and it was. It became so evident that those changes had to be made, and they had to be made pretty darn quick. Yeah, yeah. It was the idea of a cover-up, right? It wasn't necessarily exactly. the crime itself. It was the idea that there'd been a cover-up in place for about four years, and then there was all kinds of journalism and reporting going on about the amount of uh, money that's taken as annual dues from parents of kids who play hockey were being used simply as legal fees and settlement fees. So the advertisers came for it, members came for it, and like it was time for a change. So yeah. that's where Catherine Henderson comes in. Why does Catherine feel she's the right choice to be the new leader? Well, you know, she's a very unique individual. She's a devoted hockey mom and a high-level sports executive. Uh, previously at the Pan and Parapan American games. In her most recent gig as CEO of Curling Canada, Henderson fought for and won, this is the big point, and won pay equity for the sport's uh, female players. So she's uh, very much equipped to correct uh, hockey's, um, what should we call it, bro culture, I guess we could call it. I think that's fair. Uh, I think it's fair to call it that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, She... um, you know, she brought in a lot of policies and a lot of measures that really um, that really benefit the sport. So get into some of the specifics there. What does Catherine want to change about the culture at Hockey Canada? Well, her direct quote was elitism, uh, gender-based uh, violence, any so- sort of homophobia, misogyny, um, uh, racism or sexism. I mean, that's a big plate of things that have to uh, be addressed. But uh, she wants to address each of these. She thinks that a lot of the a lot of the younger players are, are, are you know, um, how should I put this? They're kind of swayed sometimes uh, by uh, some of the older uh, players into uh, things that they not, might necessarily not agree with, but they go along with it because of the, as we said before, this bro culture, right? And she's trying to rectify that. Yeah, it, and, but this this goes structurally beyond maybe a 10-year-old influencing an 8-year-old or a 13-year-old influencing a 10-year-old. This is about the people in the coaching ranks and the executives yes. and the managers as well, right? The culture has to start from the top, and that's where I think Catherine Henderson is saying, again, I'm going to go back to this notion, Don. It's not the crime, it's the cover-up. When something went wrong at a Canada at a Hockey Canada event, it appears there was an alleged cover-up. 
around a gang sexual assault, right? And and it looked like Hockey Canada specifically was trying to cover that up to avoid embarrassment. And that's the problem, right? That's the adults in the room doing that, not the kids acting like idiots. So so I, th- I think that when you talk about sort of, oh, you know, it's, it's the 14-year-olds influencing the 10-year-olds. No, it's the 30-year-olds and the 40-year-olds and the 50-year-olds influencing the 7-year-olds. Yeah. And she also says in the article, she's very clear that, you know, her son Michael played uh, rap hockey for a long time. And she said the experience was anything uh, 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 opposite of toxic. She said it was very, very good, uh, you know, uh, positive experience. And she wants that kind of experience for basically anybody who wants to play hockey in this yeah, country. Absolutely. Uh, going back to this underlying notion of hockey is for everyone, even though uh, the National Hockey League has uh, confused that a couple times in the last year itself. Dawn, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That's content curator Don Dickinson. McLean's Magazine airs weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up next, the buzz around Netflix's All the Light We Cannot See continues. And Drake Delanero will preview an exclusive interview with actors Aria Maya Liberti and Lewis Hoffman. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There's so much buzz around Netflix's All the Light We Cannot See. The series continues to be a top five trending show on Netflix. It's based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel. It follows the story of a French girl who is blind. She and her father flee German-occupied Paris. They have a significant diamond that they are trying to keep from getting into the hands of the Nazis. There's been a lot of talk on the show around the series. A few weeks ago, I interviewed the show's accessibility consultant, Joe Strecce. Last week, film critic Amy Amanti shared her review. This week, there's a little something extra for you. Senior producer Andrika Delanerol is here to tell you more about it. Hey, good morning, Andrika. Good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm great, Andrika. There's just been so much buzz around this show, and there's been a lot of really good talk here about it. What do you have in store for audiences with this exclusive? Yeah, you know, it's funny, uh, Dave. Last week, uh, we had the opportunity from Netflix. They were hosting a virtual junket to meet a couple of the stars from the show. Uh, so the original intention was just to bring content back to this show. But then, you know, we figured, hey, we got a, a good 15-minute interview with the two stars, Aria Mia Liberti and Lewis Hoffman. And so we figured, why not uh, make it as a Now with Dave Brown exclusive on AMI+. Plus? So it is going to be coming up later today on AMI+, Plus uh, for you at home, to stream in full. But uh, today I'm going to share a couple of highlights with you. Yeah, a little appetizer. little appetizer yeah, before the main course drops. So you've got a couple clips with you today. You had a chance to learn more about the lead actor's debut role. What did she have to say? You know what? Um, so I just want to backtrack for one second. Last week we had Amy Amanti on the show. And Amy, um, Amy was very excited about this show. She ended up doing some background research on Aria and um, shared 
she pretty much shared her extensive academic background um, because as a lot of people are talking about right now, Arya has never acted in a, a film role or anything prior to uh, landing this role on All the Light We Cannot See. So that was something I wanted to know about from Arya is how much of her academic world did she incorporate into this role as Marie? So let's hear what she had to say. It's so interesting because I started out, as you said, as an academic, but I was never really happy and I didn't know why. And I loved what I studied, but I just, I knew I didn't want to do it as a career. And I always fought for my education and to be able to say that I got to where I got. I'm like, I was just so grateful and excited to be there, but why wasn't I happy? And it's like this was supposed to be the thing I was doing the whole time. And I, I because it is that distillation of knowledge um, in this case of history, that I was able to bring to preparing a character. And it humanizes all of this sort of book smart knowledge that I've accumulated and really studied for this whole time. And it allows me to not only internalize it, but physicalize it. I don't know if that's a word, but you know what I mean. And um, I did so much preparation for her, of course, like looking into the history of this time period and the history of the radio. And I study. Um, history of communication. So like this was just, it was so interesting, even though this was not the period I studied, to understand that words have power. Not only do they have power, but they shape the reality we live in. And a character like this who, she's not necessarily aware of the power of her words, but she knows that they're influencing the resistance. She knows that they're reaching someone, maybe giving someone hope. And she has persistence of hope that she can do better and maybe reach someone across the airwaves. And so all of these spreadsheets and all of this time with the book and the study into the town of Samalo and the history of World War II and of everything down to the food and the clothing and the mm. she's she herself is a is a scientist, so like that wasn't something I knew anything about. And we experienced the world in such vastly different ways. So as an academic, it was wonderful to be able to immerse really technically and intellectually into it. But when I got to set, I realized, you know, I was learning as I go that intellectualizing isn't always great when you're on set. But that next step of allowing all of this knowledge I accumulated to be in my body and be in my muscles, forget it all and just let it live in my memory and be human and be her was so wonderful. So it was very helpful. What an interesting approach from a first time mm -hmm. actor to sort of immerse themselves and then have the realization to say, because I've immersed, <laughs> I can now make it muscle memory. Uh, that's so interesting from Aria on that point. And just like Aria, her counterpart, Lewis Hoffman, did a ton of preparation for the role. What stood out to you about him? So in this show, it's really interesting because uh, every character is extremely expressive. I mean, it's during the wartime, so it's a very emotional time. Um, so, you know, Arya's character, um, she does such a great job in her facial expressions. There's other characters, uh, a lot of the, uh, the Nazi soldiers are, you know, they have a lot of angry faces and just a lot of, um, just a lot of tone in, in, in their physical expression. But with Lewis's character, he plays a uh, young uh, German man who gets recruited uh, as a, a soldier by the Nazis, mainly for his talent of having the ability to repair radios. And so there's something different about how we approach this character 
a lot of the emotions are expressed in the character's eyes, but Lewis also took a different approach um, going beyond the book and just trying to immerse himself in getting to know his character. So let's hear what he had to say. I did a session, well, a session of a week, uh, a week of um, fixing, pre preparing, uh, um, building, understanding radios. Because I think aside from the intellectual prep, which um, I also love, um, but I also love prep that is physical. And that doesn't mean, you know, like working out or whatsoever, but something physical that the character does, which just sort of seeming connects you to the character and makes you tap into it quite easily without everything being very conscious, mm -hmm. so to say, so less intellectual. And um, so that's what I did for a week, and that sort of, I don't know, really connected me to the character and to the, to the way of how he, I don't know, looks at things, handles, handles things, touches things. So that's a bit about the way in which the actors approached their preparation for the roles. But zooming out a little bit, a few weeks ago, I spoke with disability consultant Joe Strecce. He touched on the importance of authentic casting in the show and made reference to the show's director, Sean Levy. Let's take a moment to listen back to what he had to say. Getting to work with uh, uh, the Sean and having my input, but we also got the input of uh, different consumer groups as well as respectability and uh, the American Council of the Blind and National Federation of the uh, Blind. And um, so it's not just my feedback, but I'm there every day uh, and I, I live every day in those scripts and making sure that what we're doing is uh, putting blindness in the best light possible within the story. Um, as well as the input of Aria, uh, who's this brilliant young woman. I'm not a, a woman, and uh, a young girl's experience of blindness might be different than a young male's experience of blindness. But I'm also making sure the historical parts, like the white cane uh, first started getting distributed by the Lions, uh, Lions Club in uh, 1931. Uh, you know, that was uh, when the white cane started being adopted. Uh, prior to that, there were all kinds of different canes and such. And um, and kind of what, what the cane is made of, how it looks, how it's being used, um, all kinds of different aspects, the tools that are used in the show, uh, whether it's uh, the type of brailler or whether it's uh, stuff that's the set decoration in the background. You heard Joe make reference to the importance of representing blindness in a positive light. That's something that Aria touched on in her discussion with Andrika. Let's take a listen to what she has to say about bridging her lived experience with the role of Marie. Well, this was probably one of the, the biggest elements in my prep. Um, because her, her movements are, are really quite specific and I think we have a hundred years of, of film that has taught us that a, a blind character looks a particular way that unfortunately is remarkably stigmatizing because it's not been authentic it hasn't really uh, taken time to like learn from this community and hear our voices so in beautiful pieces of art some stereotypes have been enforced and those include like vacantly looking away several feet off from eye contact never making an effort to look towards the sound of someone's voice um, palms out, shuffling feet, uh, vapidness, like all of these qualities that somehow have come to mean blindness for an audience, when in reality, in the real world, blindness is very rarely observable, particularly through your face and eyes and the placement of your, your eye line or the placement of eye contact, um, because 
that's just, you, you follow sounds, it's polite. It's polite to look towards the sound of someone's voice, to look slightly up so that you're, you know you're making eye contact. Um, the eyes would look where, where your hand goes. Like these are just fundamental mm -hmm. truths about being a person who's blind or low vision that somehow have never made their way into film. So I understand that the sighted audience uh, who has not exposed themselves to this population before, at no fault of their own, might be really jarred by the fact that this character, in her bearing, appears just like them. Um, but the, the message and the cues to the blindness is either in circumstance or is in the movement of her hands and feet. And I think Sean did such a beautiful job of listening to Joe and his cues to understand you know, that you, you can't necessarily have this character look two feet away from someone when they're speaking to symbolize the blindness. That would be a trope, and it would be wrong, especially for a character who's as strong and resolute as Marie. So if he wanted to communicate it, it would be in the gesture of the hand reaching to the radio dial or a specific movement of her hands on the braille page. Um, there's so much that blind and low vision people today learn, like reading braille and using a cane that Marie wouldn't have access to. Um, she would have had to learn a lot of those things independently. The technique is totally different from today. So I think it's so important to see the differences in the historical time period then and now. Um, but also for me, as someone who, like 90% of the population uh, of the blind community is, is not totally blind, to portray a totally blind character and allow my lived experience to shine through um, and for the audiences to recognize that blindness is a spectrum and that lived experience is so valuable and important to telling these stories truthfully and honestly and that diversity and the inclusion and representation of those voices in this industry and in this piece allows us to be better people and to open up our world to those who are different than us. That's such an interesting observation about historical authenticity, not just simply saying a modern authenticity, but looking back at that perspective, and it goes back to that research side. Such such a fascinating process going into making the show, and it seems to have uh, resonated with people really, really well, and that's why the show continues to be a top trender. Andrika, you are much better at consuming content in a timely <laughs> manner than I am. It's still football season over here. There's only so many hours in the day, but you finished the series. You finished all the light we cannot see. What were your impressions of the series? You know, Dave, I actually caught the first half of the series um, at the premiere at the Toronto International Film oh, Festival. Okay. I just walked in as as a, a fan of TIFF, and um, I barely knew anything about it. I just knew that the character is blind, and that has to do with radios, and that's literally why I walked in. And I walked out, and I was so blown away. I actually knew nothing about Arya, so I was Googling her and I was trying to learn more about her, and that's when I was learning, wow, this is this is an actual uh, person with lived experience, and I must say this, it is it made all the difference to have that authentic representation on screen. It really did. I was thinking about what if there was a different actor, uh, an able-bodied actor who were to portray this role. It wouldn't have had the same effect. People wouldn't be talking about it the way they are now. Um, it made all the difference. And I also think it was just such a brilliant choice to choose uh, a, to choose fresh blood to to uh, to be the star of the show. Mm -hmm. um, Lewis Hoffman, he's been in the Netflix show Dark. He's He's had some 
some work done as well, but he's not a, a big well-known face as uh, two other actors in this show are Mark Ruffalo and Hugh Laurie. But honestly, watching the show, I forgot about Hugh Laurie and Mark Ruffalo. Like, it, it, you could have gone without them, to be honest, because these two stars really, they stole the show and they were amazing. It made all the difference. And also, it's only four episodes, extremely digestible, which I really appreciated. <laughs> In a world of uh, 18 episode eighteen episode seasons and seven seasons to go through, yeah, four works for exactly. me. Andrika, thank you for this. Excellent work. Uh, have a nice day. Talk to you a little bit later. Talk to you soon. You can find Andrika's full interviews as part of this Now with Dave Brown exclusive with Aria Mia Liberte and Lewis Hoffman on amiplus.ca. So visit amiplus.ca. Those interviews are going to go up a little bit later today. So just be mindful, amiplus.ca. And don't forget, you've got to spell the plus, P-L-U-S. And of course, you can find All the Light We Cannot See on Netflix. Coming up in 60 seconds, Alex Smythe has the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minutes. Canada's main stock index eked out a small gain yesterday, while U.S. markets climbed higher ahead of today's Thanksgiving holiday. Toronto's TSX index crept four points higher to close at 20,113. New York's Dow Jones average added 184 points yesterday, and the Nasdaq rose 65. U.S. markets will be closed today for a holiday, and Japanese markets were closed today as well. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 73.09 cents U.S. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will host the leaders of the European Union beginning today in St. John's for their two-day EU-Canada summit. The wars unfolding in Gaza between Israel and Hamas militants, along with the ongoing war in Ukraine, are expected to feature prominently in the talks, but trade, climate and energy are also on the agenda. And Stellantis is recalling more than 32,000 hybrid Jeep Wrangler SUVs because of a potential fire risk. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebeau. That's a look at the money. Let's bring in Alex Smythe to talk about weather. Alex, this one may not surprise anybody. It's uh, snowing up in northern Canada. Yeah, Dave, I figured it would be appropriate to highlight the territories uh, once in a while on the weather story of the day. And so today we are focused up in Nunavut, which they are currently in the midst of a blizzard. So there is a potent blizzard in the area that's left multiple communities without power that really came in Wednesday. And it's it's really been affecting the Kivalik region, which saw power lines down, roofs blown off houses. And it's really due to the strong winds that have accompanied this blizzard. And strong winds, we're talking 100 kilometer per hour plus winds. And so it's forced that whole region to really shutter and shelter in place. The regional airports, schools, businesses all closed because of this blizzard. Now, there are still travel advisories in effect because the storm is expected to move on and dissipate later today. So those travel advisories will stay in effect until 
the stormy conditions kind of change and, and dissipate. So the high winds have also forced visibility to be extremely low or near zero. So the region has advised if you try, if you need to travel, only do it in urgent cases and take extreme caution while you do so. Alex, thank you for this update. Talk to you a little bit later. Coming up next, the 2023 Parapan American Games are underway in Santiago, Chile. Community reporter Nathan Clement is on the ground. We'll give you an update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The 2023 Parapan American Games are taking place in Santiago, Chile. Community reporter Nathan Clement is competing in the games and has been having some success here and has another race scheduled for this weekend. Nathan, I imagine it's a very busy time, a very busy week for you right now. Thank you for taking a little bit of time to be a part of the show. Thank you for having me on. It's exciting to talk to you and share everything that's going on at the Parapan American Games. So Nathan, let's just start with you as an individual. How are the competitions going for you so far? I had the time trial on the last Sunday on the 19th and I ended up winning gold in my event, the T1, T2 uh, mixed time trial. Overall, a really tough race, but uh, the community we were in, Isla the Maple, was beautiful. We had loud crowds. Uh, beautiful vineyards, the Andes in the backdrop. So it was overall just an incredible experience to get going at these games. And where do you go from here? You've already had a little bit of success. Congratulations, that's fantastic. Where do the games take you from here for the next week or so? So for me, my next race is on Sunday, the 26th. Uh, early in the morning out here is our road race. So it's gonna be everyone in the T1, the trike category, T1, T2, all racing together. But for myself, I have some teammates racing today on the track, which I don't take part in because I'm on a tricycle and they're a little too unbalanced for a track type bike, um, a track type stadium. So I'm going to be going out to cheer them on later today. What's the overall morale of the team? Like you say, there, there's some individual components here, but there's a team aspect as well. What's the overall, what's the overall morale like for you guys? We overall have a very small crew of athletes. We only have seven in total for the cycling team, but overall spirits are quite high. We've had my roommate, uh, Alexander Hayward, uh, win gold in his time trial, as well as Charles Moreau winning bronze and Michael Simetz winning bronze. So today in the track, we have some big performances, hopefully to come from Mel Pemble, Keely Shaw, Alex Hayward once again, and Mike. So we're really having spirits high as a, uh, it's been a great time to be down here interacting with other athletes from other teams and Canada is really, really doing well so far. Nathan, every time I talk to you about these elite athleticisms, I always have to make the confession that I've never done anything elitely. What's it like on the ground when you're maybe between events, you still want to get some training in or do a little bit of maintenance? How does it affect you as an athlete to sort of be somewhere that is at least a little bit out of your comfort zone? It's one of those places where 
I'm very lucky and we're very lucky to have a great strong crew of people from the Canadian Paralympic Committee, from uh, Cycling Canada, but also other sports too, where everyone's uplifting, everyone wants to support each other. I've had tons of conversations with like, for example, the wheelchair rugby team, wheelchair basketball team, Athletics Canada. So it is a little weird when you have a lot of downtime but it's great to have like great groups of people around you on your own team, but also spread out across your country and in environments like this, it's just so special and really a privilege to have this opportunity to represent your country in somewhere like Chile in somewhere around the world like this. So just to be here is a great gift in itself. What about the venues and the facilities? How are you finding that experience? Are you having a good time? I'm loving it so far. The village is absolutely incredible. The food is fantastic. There's a whole um, Red Bull uh, kind of arcade gaming area where you can drive an F1 car, uh, play foosball, uh, table tennis, air hockey, uh, various other facilities. And there's also a Gatorade station, um, a little athletes kind of international zone where you can get souvenirs, have a food garden. It's overall a really fun place, but uh, I'm going to be excited today to see what the track's like. Mm. But the road race course that I was in was remarkable. From the town that we started off in, which is about a couple blocks long, to getting out of the town, the crowds were full, the streets were packed. I had the privilege of riding in the car, watching another athlete's race, Keely Shaw's time trial, a little earlier than mine, and just seeing the people banging drums, uh, yelling from their windows as Keely went on her race was just absolutely incredible to witness and just feel that atmosphere of being in a major like Santiago 2023. After your race this weekend, when do you get to have a little bit of fun? When do you get to start hanging out with the other athletes from other countries? I've, I've kind of been doing that a little bit right now just because I've had some time in between my races. Uh, I had a, a, a week break in between, but... Um, the cycling is the final event to go at the games in the road race. So once we're done around nine or 10 in the morning out here, uh, it's going to be a celebration and a party of the closing ceremonies a little later on in the day. So uh, just going to enjoy that before the long, long flight back to Canada. Well, Nathan, I want to wish you the best of luck here on your last event. Congratulations on the success you're already having. Have a little bit of fun out there and looking forward to catching up with you uh, when you're back in a couple of weeks. Thank you, Dave. All the best to everyone out in Canada right now. That's Nathan Clement, community reporter, usually based in Vancouver, British Columbia. But uh, Nathan is a Paralympian, para-athlete down there at the Parapan Am Games in Santiago, Chile, giving you an update from on the ground. In one minute, Laura Bain will have the entertainment report. But first, smart home devices can pose a cybersecurity risk. Mike Tabuski explains in Tech Trends. Tony Anscombe of ESET says there are plenty of home appliances that now come with internet connections, from refrigerators to microwaves. As we're at Thanksgiving, you know, one that comes to mind is a lot of barbecues now have wireless controllers on them. He says that increased connectivity opens up more risk from bad actors who could use your devices to steal information or for other purposes. Maybe your refrigerator is the one sending the spam 
that we all see in our e inboxes every morning, uh, or it's being used as a resource for crypto mining. Hanscombe says if you're unsure about a device's security, make sure to separate it from your main Wi-Fi network. If you're not using the guest network, put those devices on that guest network and keep them away from devices that have your personal information. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Over to the world of entertainment, a popular Netflix comedy special is causing some controversy. Laura Bain, you've got some more info here on Matt Reif's latest Netflix special. Yeah, that's right. This is the uh, Natural Selection uh, comedy special, which was released last week. I checked this morning. It's currently sitting at the number three most watched Netflix TV show in Canada. Uh, but it's been getting some backlash, as you mentioned, for a joke that he makes right off the beginning of the show about domestic violence. Um, and perhaps it's worth noting here, Matt Reif is known for his large female fan base, something that he comments on in the special. But he's responded to the backlash. He's getting He's getting backlash based on his response to the backlash um, because a couple of days ago, he posted a link on his social media to his quote-unquote official apology for the joke, which actually directs people to a medical website that, spell, that sells helmets for people with special needs. I don't love that terminology, but that's the terminology yeah, on the website. Yeah. Um, so he responded to backlash about making jokes about domestic violence by making fun of people with disabilities. So that's just awesome. Now, there has been a fair bit of um, backlash uh, just kind of in the last 24 hours from the disability community about um, about that, about the response and the special needs helmet. But I watched his comedy special last night. It was full of hugely offensive jokes about disability, even the title Natural Selection, like spoiler don't waste your time it's a reference to a super ableist joke he makes towards the end of the special um but somehow this still made it to number one most watching canada over the weekend and so i'm just kind of thinking about and i've got a question for you dave about why the ableism throughout this special wasn't getting that same initial backlash yeah, I wonder. I, I wonder about whether or not perhaps the the backlash might have been there, but it gets it doesn't get the same traction or pickup mm -hmm. from mainstream media in this in the in the same way. But but if I were to zoom out even further, Laura, I, I would just say I wonder if people with disabilities are feeling that general advocacy fatigue, and they only have so much oxygen to worry about a comedy special that's clearly a comedian who is not afraid to push boundaries and be a little bit offensive that at a certain juncture in the culture war, there's only so much oxygen and space to fight every single battle. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. And of course, there is like for me, my mind goes to this huge intersection of domestic violence and disability, which mm, is where I've been mm -hmm. kind of putting a lot of my attention in my my social work education. Um, I like some offensive comedians. I like comedy specials. Yeah, same. And I, for me, I do think there's a way to make jokes about even communities that you're not a part of. But for me, when I, I watched this, I just didn't find it funny because I felt like it reflected... It wasn't clearly a joke to me. I felt like it actually reflected some more deeply rooted misogyny and ableism. I don't know Matt Reif. I wouldn't want to like comment on his personality, but just based on his act, I felt like it was sort of maybe 
rooted in some problematic beliefs. And I think that when you make these jokes, if you miss the mark, you kind of end up bordering on hate speech, which is very problematic. Yeah, yeah. The, the way that I always think about it too, because I also am not afraid of comedians who are willing to push the boundary. In fact, most good comedy does push the boundary in some way, but more often than not, a lot of modern comedians, I find are just a little bit lazy in their approach. They're kind of going for the low hanging fruit observation rather than putting something together, putting the puzzle pieces together to build an interesting observation that is unique or original. Now, I haven't seen this particular special yet, but I think I've seen a couple of these clips pop up on social. Like, it's just... It's just not creative, right? If, if you want to push my boundaries, you better be creative in the way that you do it. I agree. And in my opinion, if you're going to make offensive jokes, you also better be funny, which I just, <laughs> yeah. I, I laughed a total, I think I laughed out loud a total of three times in the hour long special. So I'm not saying he doesn't have any talent, but overall. For this, I'm away tomorrow. Talk to you next week. Thanks, Steve. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. A little more talk from the Para Pan Am Games in Santiago, Chile. Nathan Clement gave you a bit of the cycling insight a few moments ago in the Community Report. Sprock Richardson will have a wholesome update, a more holistic look at what's going on with some results around all kinds of sports at the Games. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Also, streaming audio at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, November the 23rd, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Hearsight and Micro OLED have a partnership. They are testing a pair of augmented reality glasses designed for users who are deaf or hard of hearing. Marco Flalo will give you the scoop. And the creator is available on demand. Michael McNeely shares a review of the sci-fi film that I really wanted to see in theaters, but then ran out of time. I'm telling you, this football season thing is really tough. I still haven't seen Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm still behind on the Scorsese. I'm behind on the creator. I gotta get, I gotta get my stuff together. I gotta find time to go see these movies again. But that's my problem. Let's talk about you and offer up the regional news update. Starting in British Columbia, BC is expanding its real estate speculation and vacancy tax. Finance Minister Katrine Conroy lays out how many communities will be impacted. The tax now applies to a total of 59 communities in British Columbia. And through this expansion, the speculation and vacancy tax is encouraging owners of multiple homes to rent them or sell them. Some of the communities added are Vernon, Penticton, and Kamloops. The vacancy and speculation tax was first introduced in 2018. 
Over to the prairies, Manitoba's government is reconsidering a plan to build nine schools started by the previous progressive conservative government. Premier Wab Canoe says the Tories did not set aside money for the schools. He also expressed concerns about the private, private public funding model that would cost the province a lot of money up front. Canoe says the schools will still be built, but the time frame may change. And finally, in the Atlantic provinces, the Prince Edward Island government has introduced a new housing support program for middle-income islanders. The new closing cost support program will provide a reimbursement up to $2,500 towards the closing costs associated with the purchase of their first home. The program can be used with the province's existing down payment assistance program. That's your look at the regional news. Here comes Brock Richardson with a sports chat. Brock, we always think to ourselves, oh, maybe today is going to be a slower day at the Parapan American <laughs> Games in Santiago, Chile. But then you prepare these updates and it's just lists and lists and reams and reams of events that took place. So you've got the update here, starting with the world of track and field. Yeah, I was laughing at myself middle of the way through the day going, yeah, this is not a light day at all. Sharania <laughs> uh, Hayes claimed the bronze medal in the women's T47, 200 meter. Noah Viscus has has won the bronze medal in the men's T20 long jump. So that's track and field for the medals yesterday. What about down in the pool? How are the swimmers doing? Tyson McDonald swam to a silver in the men's 200 meter medley S14. Uh, and then this is a cool story that kind of is a follow-up to one that we talked about earlier in the week. The youngest member of the Canadian Paralympic team, Fernando Liu, is a swimmer. He added a bronze in the 100-meter butterfly to his silver medal. Now, the thing about this, Dave, is most national sports organizations have a, you have to be at least 16 years of age to qualify. So the fact that this individual has won not one but two medals is pretty cool. So good on him for being 16 years old and, uh, you know, contributing to the medal totals for Canada. I think the pun you were looking for is making waves in the water. Yeah, I was looking for one, but I didn't find it. <laughs> uh, Brock, okay, that's that's the track. That's the swimming pool. What about over to the Bacha courts? Uh, male BC1. Uh, category for Canada, Lance Kreiderman walks away with the silver medal in the individual competition. BC2 in the male division, uh, Danica Lard walks away with the silver medal. Allison Levine walks away with the gold medal in the women's BC4 category. Wow. So very, very good day for Botch yesterday. In addition to the medal we talked about yesterday morning being bronze in the BC4 for uh, that medal as well. So very good day there. Allison Levine has to be running out of uh, room to store all the medals that she wins uh, at all these different Olympics and Paralympic Games and uh, and uh, Parapan American Games. Yeah, she, uh, the great thing about her is she's played in three events this year and won all three of them. Some of them are national, some of them are international. She has just had a wonderful, wonderful season. You talk about peaking at the right time. 
Allison has got that full force. Now we're moving on in the bocce world to the team and pairs competition, which gets underway uh, today. And we should expect some more medals in that department nice. when uh, things get going. So we'll see. Yeah, I had a chance to interview uh, Allison ahead of the uh, Brazil Paralympic Games and uh, was pretty blown away by uh, where, where she was at as an athlete uh, back then. So uh, no doubt uh, peaking at the right time. Here we are uh, seven years later as time marches forward. Uh, Brock, what about the goalball courts? Uh, let's start with uh, the Canada women's program. Uh, defeated Mexico in a mercy rule 10 nothing victory if you in goalball have a a separation of 10 points or more well it would be 10 points as as the maximum you would get the mercy rule so they played really really well yesterday they were led by megan mahan and amy burke who scored most of of the goals for canada yesterday so they are off to the uh semifinals against brazil this is going to be a real real tough test brazil has two sisters that play on the team and they are really really good so this is going to be a tough test for canada uh but we'll see and i hope they can you know slay the giant if you will Mm -hmm. on the men's on the men's side of things uh they defeated chile nine to one and we'll also be moving on to the semifinal. they have to take on the united states so this is a very very tough day uh for goalball coming up but hopefully we can uh triumphantly be on top at the end of the day today. Yeah, I know you'll have the update on that one on tomorrow's show. And then on Monday, Peter Parsons of Blind Sports Nova Scotia will go a little bit more in depth on some of the goalball experiences for the Apera athletes down there in Santiago. Uh, Brock, what about rugby? What's going on in the field? Canada continues their dominating streak. They uh, played Brazil yesterday, 60-45. This was a bit of a tighter game than what I expected. Uh, they they beat Brazil in the round robin by a bit of a wider margin than this. I was sort of surprised. But again, we're in a, in a gold medal game today, which will be at 5 p.m. Eastern on CBC Gem against the United States. Winner has the right to go on to uh, Paris 2024, and then uh, the loser will get silver medal. So lots on the line today. Wait, uh, if, if Canada loses this rugby game, there's no shot at the Paralympics in Paris next year, or they just have to go into a different qualification? They, they would have to go into what they call a last chance tournament. Okay. So there would be no direct qualification. This one's a direct qualification. If they don't win, then they would have to go into a last oh, chance wow. tournament, which is a lot of the case for people who are playing team and individual sports. If you don't qualify directly, you're going into a uh, oh, last chance tournament, which can be real real tough oh man so lots on the line today in that game against the u.s not just pride there's a there's a literal travel planning on the line here uh depending on the outcome of today's game and then brock over to wheelchair basketball what's the late what is the latest another uh pretty dominant victory by the uh, men's they won a men's program they won 88 31 against uh costa rica they will move on to the semifinal this path has another uh crash course uh towards the united states and canada both on the men's and women's side of things the women play t- tomorrow in the semifinal so things are looking good in wheelchair basketball canada but again same uh pathway they win they directly get into paris they lose they got to go into a second chance tournament so lots of pressure coming on to canada and other nations uh, as we wrap this thing up so 
And uh, finally, here on the Pan American Games front, the medal count, Brock. What's uh, where's Canada at here? You, you know, you mentioned a lot of wins there yesterday, but I couldn't keep track. Yeah, I had to pull out the abacus and calculator <laughs> yesterday to <laughs> to get this thing done. But uh, four gold, seven silver, and thirteen bronze for a total of twenty-four. That's a lot of success from a lot of different athletes there, and you know they're feeling uh, very good about it. Brock, you've been so locked in to the Parapan Am Games. I'm curious, will you have time for NFL Thanksgiving football today? Three <laughs> games on the agenda. Green Bay and Detroit just after noon. Dallas and Washington just after four. And then the evening game, Seattle and San Francisco. It's actually three interesting divisional ri rivalry games in all three cases, just maybe not the most competitive. Will, will you have time to squeeze in a little NFL? NFL football today I will because the beautiful thing about the Parapan Am games is it's on my tablet because it's on CBC gem my TV has space for NFL football today okay. so I will be taking <laughs> most of the games in I'll probably crash midway through the uh, you know 8 15 8 30 game but we'll see how far we get along yeah, I, uh, I've got to confess, Brock, I'm very happy that I took tomorrow off because mm -hmm. I'm kind of ready to soak in this one. The, the next three days are probably, well, next four days if you count the Sunday NFL, are four of the best football days of the year because you get the triple header going on in the pros today. There's about a dozen college football games tomorrow as well as an NFL game. Saturday, you get big games like Ohio State and Michigan playing for uh, essentially a playoff bid for the college football playoffs. You get rivalry games like Alabama and Auburn, the Iron Bowl. It's, it's just probably four of the best days to be a football fan. And uh, by the time I speak to you on Monday, I'm going to be very full of carbohydrates. So I look yeah. forward to catching up with you in early next week. Yes, enjoy the uh, football coma that you will <laughs> place yourself in. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. My friends will be very deeply unhappy with me. Brock, I'm always happy with you. Have a great day. Thank you. You as well. That's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk coming up. After the break, Hearsight and Micro OLED have a new partnership. They're testing a pair of augmented reality glasses designed for users who are deaf or hard of hearing. Marco Flalo will give you the scoop. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in beautiful audio on amiplus.ca. Hearsight and Micro OLED have partnered to create a pair of augmented reality glasses for users who are deaf or hard of hearing. Among other things, the glasses provide real-time subtitles. Mark Aflalo has more of the details. Mark is the co-host of Access Tech Live. Usually you'd hear from Mark in Montreal, Quebec. But not today. Mark is in Miami, Florida. Hello, Mr. Aflalo. Mr. Brown, how are you doing? I am well. I'm going to ask you Florida questions at the end of this interview to find out if you okay. are a true Florida man. Oh. But let's talk about these augmented reality glasses. How does the real-time subtitle technology on this device differ from existing assistive technologies? 
Well, uh, existing technologies for, you know, the deaf and hard of hearing include things like hearing aids, cochlear implants, you know, standalone subtitling and transcription services. The HearSight technology actually integrates a real-time text-to-speech or speech-to-text, in this case, conversion that's displayed directly on the lens in front of you, true augmented reality. Now, the goal of this approach is obviously to provide a more immersive experience, and something that's a little bit more direct without the obvious, you know, cachet of, oh, I'm wearing something or I'm actually doing something to assist me. So it allows the user to actually see subtitles in their field of view, making communication a little bit easier and somewhat more seamless and natural, some would say. Mm. What about some of the other features that are being integrated in this partnership? Well, I mean, some other features include the entertainment side of things. And for people who are not necessarily deaf or hard of hearing, imagine being able to overlay information, text information on your daily life. If you're a cyclist or a sports or an athlete, um, you can get real-time data and analytics in your field of view. Uh, imagine any kind of experience that you want to see some kind of analytics, but don't want to take your eye off of what you're looking at, whether it's, you know, I, I tend to stick with the sports world because that tends to be where you're curious about, you know, distance of travel travel, for example, or speed, or telemetry, for example. But anything that you could think of that would be fun or interesting to have in your field of view without taking your attention off anything else could be an application for this, because just like any other piece of AR technology, augmented reality glasses, you know, these can display anything in your field of view so that you're looking like you're looking at a subject, just like I'm looking at you, but I could be reading a script that's coming on my, on my lenses right now. What are some of the challenges here for developers as they're putting these as they're putting this technology together and going through the testing phase? So with this device in particular, because it's listening for audio and transcribing that, the, one of the biggest challenges they have is active noisy environments. So if you're watching a movie, obviously that's a case where audio is fairly well balanced. But if you're at a concert or you're at an event or just imagine a conference, a noisy conference, and you're trying to have a conversation with someone for it to pick up just the voice and distinguish that. Mm. That being said, there's a lot of technology and a lot of research and development going on in technology that allows it to really pinpoint the audio that's in front of you. We see that this day and age in modern day headphones. The other thing is real-time processing because they don't want this bulky headset on someone's head. They have to really shrink down the processing and the battery life to yeah. work together to make something that actually is a little seamless on your on your head and doesn't look like, you know, a Quest 3, for example. Looking beyond this trial phase and this development phase, what are the long-term goals for Hearsight and Micro OLED in terms of scalability and getting this product to market? Well, definitely you said scalability. That's the number one on their list. They need to make sure that they can scale this at a rapid pace and reduce the costs in the process because they want to make the technology accessible to anybody who wants to get it. You know, so they, don't, they don't want it classified as this assistive technology device that's going to be you know, six, $7,000 out of the gate. So affordability is a second on that list, which comes, of course, with the scalability and the ability to create something at a scale at a, a good price and accessibility, you know, continuously improving the technology to accommodate a broader range of hearing impairments, for example, and other disabilities as well, if you could think of it. Yeah, absolutely. Trying to think beyond sort of just one individual test case, yeah. but serving a multitude of people. Mark, really interesting here. Obviously, it's the test test phase. It's the initial phase. But certainly, there's, there's a prospect here, and they've identified a clear need. And there's a lot of people who would probably really enjoy having real-time subtitles uh, being offered up in front of them. I, I, for me, as someone who's legally blind, that's not the case. But there's a ton of people who, even as it stands, just love to use subtitles on anything they're doing in regards to entertainment.
you know, I joked about the script example, but having a teleprompter built into my glasses would be really cool for, for this or someone who's a content creator and wants to read a script in there on YouTube, for example, or just somebody who's presenting on stage. Imagine they don't have to worry about a prompter being yeah. you know, mistimed or on the floor or something. And think about the educational uses. You know, they could use this in an educational setting for someone who's in the class who might be hard of hearing. Give them a tool that doesn't make them stand out. You know, so there's, there's lots of applications here. I could see them go across the board. Mark, there's a correlation here between this conversation and what you have lined up for Access Tech Live today, there because is. you'll be exploring some assistive technology for people who are deaf or hard of hearing. Yeah, we're going to be talking all about over-the-counter hearing aids and really hearing aids in general. We want to discover a little bit more. Alex Smythe is going to be joining us. Obviously, if anybody watching this show is familiar with Alex, <laughs> he's going to be joining us to talk about his experiences. And we're going to get into the conversation. I really want to, I, I've got some great stories about my experiences helping my mother-in-law through this battle um, in Quebec. It's extremely expensive. Across the border, it's a lot cheaper. So we're going to try to figure out why that is. Okay, that's at noon Eastern time on AMI-TV, yes, Access Tech Live. Again, normally you'd be out of your studio in Montreal, but you happen to be in Miami, Florida right now. Why Miami? So the, the long and short of it is that uh, there's a teacher strike going on in Quebec. Um, uh, for good reason, the teachers are extremely underpaid and they want better working conditions, not only for them, but the students. So they staged and announced a three-day strike, which coincides with a ped day and a weekend. So it ends up being six days in a row that you're trying to entertain your kids. So we uh, very rapidly <laughs> hopped onto Google Flights and uh, found a really inexpensive flight down to, we actually flew into Fort Lauderdale, but we we're staying in North Miami um, with the kids just for a couple of days, just to kind of rest and relax and let them hang out at the pool. While the weather goes down in Canada, it goes pretty much steady here. It's my understanding that generally you want to fly into Fort Lauderdale rather than Miami International as it stands. So there's probably some serendipity there yeah. for you on that on that plan. Uh, Mark, you know, you're down there for U.S. Thanksgiving. You're obviously a technology guy. Black Friday is tomorrow. Are you going to be in That's line? At, are you, yeah, are you going to be there in line at 4 a.m. tomorrow to shove somebody I'm to Best Buy? Absolutely not. No, absolutely. No, I'm staying so far away from it. I've been warned. We've gone to the mall a couple of times already, and they've said, you might not want to come back here on Friday. I'm like, don't worry. We have no intentions of going anywhere near a retail location on Friday. We have dinner reservations. That's about it. So it's going to be pool, relax, dinner, and I will do some shopping on my trusty iPhone. <laughs> the old trusty <laughs> iPhone. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time. Always appreciate you stopping by no matter where in the world you may be. Have a great show at noon Eastern time today and talk to you next week. Thank you, Dave. That's Marco Flalo talking to you from Miami, Florida. Noted Florida man, Marco Flalo, the co-host of Access Tech Live. You can find that show noon Eastern time, Thursdays on AMI-TV. That's about uh, an hour and 35 minutes from right now. So start the countdown. A little bit longer down the road is The Pulse on AMI-audio. This weekend on The Pulse, have you ever heard of... Oh, there's a long word here. I gotta, I gotta look really close to make sure I get this right. Ever heard of effective able nationalism? I have not. Joita Gupta will explore some research behind the concept with Anastasia Todd of the University of Kentucky. Well, that I know. That's go Wildcats. That's the Pulse weekends at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI Audio or on your favorite podcasting platform. Coming up next, the creator is available on demand. Michael McNeely will share a review of the sci-fi action film that I've been meaning to see, and I missed it in theaters, so I'm kicking myself a little bit. But first, here is the Parasport update with Greg Westlake.
Hello, welcome back to the Parasport Update. I'm Greg Westlake. We open in Egypt where Canada's women's team captured the silver at the 2023 WPV Sitting Volleyball World Cup. The second place performance also punched the team's ticket for the 2024 Paralympics in Paris. In Santiago, Chile, the Parapan American Games opened on the weekend and Team Canada wasted no time reaching the podium. As para swimmer, Ruby Stevens won Canada's first gold on day one of competition. Also on day one, two athletes demonstrated that age isn't a barrier to success, as 66-year-old para table tennis vet Stephanie Chen won bronze while 16-year-old para swimmer Fernando Liu brought home silver. Chen is the oldest member of the team and Liu is the youngest. Canada added to its medal total when Nathan Clement and Alexander Hayward both rode to gold in paracycling, while teammates Mike Simetz and Charles Moreau secured bronzes. In the pool, Tyson McDonald has two bronzes, while teammates Jordan Tucker and Emma Van Dyke have one. On Wednesday, Kyle Tremblay aims for bronze in the men's compound open event in para-archery. As important as his advancement, Tremblay's performance so far has assured Canada a quota spot for the men's compound open for the Paris 2024 Paralympic Games. The games will continue all week and can be streamed for free on CBC Gem. And that's our time for this edition of the Parasport Update, presented by AMI-audio. Check back next week for more news from the world of adaptive sports. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Sci-fi action movie The Creator is available on demand. The film has garnered mixed reviews. It stars John David Washington and is directed by Gareth Edwards. Before entertainment critic Michael McNeely shares his take on the film, here's a clip from the movie's trailer. A bomb drops on a city. When the war started. It explodes. They protected me. A robot carries an infant. Took better care of me than humans would have. Hundreds of robots writhe in a crusher. They're not people, Maya. Human and robot troops ride a hovercraft. It's just programming. Ten years ago today, the artificial intelligence created to protect us detonated a nuclear warhead in Los Angeles. A wall surrounds the ruins. This is a fight for our very existence. Sergeant Taylor. We are this close to winning the war. Humans and robots battle. But the AI are developing a super weapon. Retrieve it. Taylor enters a cavernous chamber. Or they win. He finds a child in a chair with a stuffed animal. The child is a robot. I think you can tell why I, Dave Brown, might have interest in a movie like that, because every now and then I become Dave Bro, not just Dave Brown. Entertainment Michael McNeely has seen the film and has some opinions that he wants to share. Michael is in studio alongside his intervening, intervener, Jillian. Hello, Michael. Hi, Dave Boo. Dave Bro. Yeah, exactly. When it comes to action films, Dave Bro uh, can sometimes arise from the tide. So, Jackson Weaver from the CBC described the premise of the story that as something, quote, that has been done to death and is ultimately, quote, boring. What do you make of that statement? I like this person to be my best friend because I agree with it wholeheartedly. Um, in the film, there is a... a, a an AI child, and she is super gifted, but all she has to do is put her hands together like this, 
and so you can turn off televisions with her mind. I just wanted to turn off the movie. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to do a little bit of description there of what you did with your hands. You put your hands together as if they were in like a prayer form, putting the palm to palm and fingers to fingers and as the power to turn something off. So I'm, I'm already getting a sense of where you landed on this film with that statement in and of itself. But let's dive a little bit deeper. This film has also received some mixed opinions on its graphics and visual effects. A few folks really liking it. A few folks saying, bah, it's recycled. Where do you stand on it? While having the opportunity to watch it on the big screen here in the studio, because I was watching it on my iPad, I can appreciate the visuals. However, the visuals don't make a story, they don't make a movie. They, for me, compelling characters do all the work. And as I've said before, and I will say again, it does not cost much money to do good character work. Mm. Because all you need to do is get people in the room that you care about to talk to each other. There was absolutely no dialogue that served any purpose to develop emotion and to develop relationships or to develop bonding. And I was really disappointed in that because I felt like all the money is spent on the spectacle that you see before you if you are able to watch the trailer or able to see any pictures. The director. Gareth Edwards says he's taken some inspirations from other sort of sci-fi and action films, the Apes trilogy, uh, Blade Runner. How much of a filmmaker's efforts are in, uh, in efforts and inspiration influence the quality of a film? A question. It's the Apu trilogy. Oh, the Apu trilogy. Okay, I wasn't sure there. No, it's okay. Um, I, I did have a nice conversation with Andrea about the my homework that I had given myself which included watching 1950s uh, Bengali uh, films, which I would watch again and which I appreciated. But the inspiration was sort of left unsatisfied, I think. I think Mr. Edwards was just simply inspired by the one things. I think sometimes when the director talks about their inspirations, they may just be paying lip service so they may just want to sound more like a film geek than they actually are. Or maybe they don't want to seem like they'll bend into the wheels of capitalism, but they are. So, this film had a lot of potential because it was inspired by films such as Blade Runner, which Blade Runner, if you don't know, is the film that really revolutionized how we think about AI in um, science fiction. Especially because, spoiler alert, Harrison Ford wasn't AI in the first place. Um, however, in this film, in the creator, the use of AI is is not explained well. It's the the story takes place in the war against AI, but the people who are fighting against AI still use AI themselves to guide the missiles and things like that. So it's hard to understand why they're declaring the war against AI. Mm. What about some portrayals of Western versus Eastern culture in the film? What stood out to you there? So there was a little bit of a concern for me because the the society that the Western civilization is declaring war against is called New Asia. And that's more or less a combination of all the Asian countries and if you speak to any racist, they are likely to combine Asian countries as well. And so I was just afraid that this is only going to give lip service to that. Or I feel like it just simplifies the complexity of the world at large.
Let's talk about some of the acting here, because uh, John David Washington has found himself in a bunch of leading roles over the past few years. Uh, some of the movies have been good, and some of the movies have been uh, very bad. But I have to confess, I do find him to be very charismatic on screen. I find that he's a very good actor. How was his performance in The Creator? I would be able to tell you if I was able to notice one. Um, the, Ouch. The movie, Ouch. I don't, the movie goes by so fast. That first up, I was thinking about this morning when I was taking my bath, as I always do with my deep thoughts, like Winston Churchill. <laughs> um, I was thinking that uh, in this movie, if a character is making a sandwich, for example, you can just say, I'm making a sandwich, and boom, you're done. You're done making a sandwich. In normal life, we would see the person making the sandwich. We would see them take the bread out. We would see them butter the bread. They kind of thing. But here, we just skip right to the second, right to the end. I feel that that leaves, that leaves a lot of new ones behind. And as such, Mr. Washington's performance is not as great as it could have been under the circumstances, because he doesn't have much to do. I think the, the girl who puts her hands together in a praying position actually does more emoting than he does. Scratch deeper at that for me, Michael, because obviously it's an action movie, and action movies are not known for being slow in their pace. What was your evaluation of the way in which the creator moved through its storyline and through its action? I feel like the creator just emphasized the one aspects. I feel like it could have taken more time to develop the characters, because just like any genre, you care about the characters or get to know. If you don't get to know the characters, then you don't care about them. Mm. It's fine if you want to go see a bunch of people, you know, fight each other without caring about any of the characters, but that's not how I watch films, because as a person with low vision, I go through action films just based on characterization alone, and mm. I try and see, you know, did Dave Brown win this fight because I care about him? Or did he lose this fight because I care about him? Sometimes I don't even see the fight. Sometimes I don't even understand what happened. Right. But I understand the results, right? It's like a sports game, a sports movie. Did they win? Did they lose? Mm. I don't care about the sport. I care about what happens at the end. And so I was waiting for time, opportunity to get to know these characters. Like I've gotten to know you, Dave, over the last three years. But bam, 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 that's all I got. Wow. And then I'm thrown out the door without, a, uh, without as much as a thank you. Spoiler alert, uh, I would lose most of the fights that I would get in. So, uh, so just I'll, I'll let you know about that. If you care about me in a movie, odds are I'm, I'm going to lose. Uh, Michael, I, I, I want to go get a little deeper on this. What was the runtime on the movie, approximately, off the top of your head? 90 minutes, two hours, two and a half? Uh, I mean, how long was the How long movie? was the movie, yeah? Um, it was too long. It was um, two hours and 15 minutes. Wait, 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 okay. So it was two hours and 15 minutes, but it never actually managed to do character development? Nope. It just shot a bunch of people and, oh wait, I forgot. One of the best parts is the monkey with a grenade. Oh. Um, and I'm like, wow, how did the monkey get a grenade? Boom. Okay. And I think, well, I guess that's probably a one in for all the animal lovers out there. There's a dog with a grenade and there's a monkey oh with dear. a grenade. Oh, goodness. And um, various creatures get grenades. And I'm like, okay, maybe we should stop selling them. 
Those monkeys. Oh dear. Oh goodness. Okay. All right. I, I'm beginning to wonder if maybe this was a very well shot trailer and not a very well made movie. Actually, so <laughs> you know, stop it for a second. The trailer itself got some controversy because I think, first of all, it was designed, ironically enough, by artificial intelligence, and secondly, um, it did show the massacre in Beirut. I hope I'm pronouncing the country's yeah, name in right. Lebanon, yeah. An explosion. And uh, Gareth Edwards had to say that it was a mistake because most of the time, and I think this is valid, most of the time visual effects artists use footage from those kinds of things to, to simulate them. But they right. didn't actually mean to have the wheel that in there. So thankfully we didn't have that in our trailer today. Okay, so Michael didn't even like the trailer, which leads me to the last question. What are your final thoughts on the creator? I think the final thoughts on the creator is that it shouldn't have been created. Yikes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, this, I'm, I'm now uh, beginning to be very happy that I didn't spend $25 to see this movie in theaters. But we were talking about how you could be pampered. <laughs> yeah, it's true. The popcorn, the popcorn still goes a long way. And the one thing I'll say is even based on your review, this still strikes me as a popcorn movie. Yes, and just make sure no monkeys get grenades, please. Uh, yes, that would be ideal. Michael, thank you for this. Thank you. And you have some of the sound bikes now. You can, you can <laughs> get me somebody. Or when artificial intelligence wants to uh, make up a fake segment with you and me, there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of work for to be done. Michael, thank you for this. That's entertainment critic Michael McNeely. He reviewed the sci-fi film The Creator. It's rated PG-13 and available on demand. And now I am deeply conflicted on whether or not I will spend my hard-earned dollars. Coming up next, what's the biggest sore spot for you at Canadian airports? What's the biggest pet peeve you have when you're traveling? Alex Smythe will pose this question in the roundtable chat with myself and Ramya Emlethen. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's a busy day around AMI-tv. Live programming hitting the airwaves at noon Eastern time with Access Tech Live. And at 2 p.m. Eastern time, Kelly and Ramya hit the airwaves as well. Ramya Amuthan is the co-host of that show and can offer up a preview of what's coming down the pipeline today. Good morning, Ramya. Morning, Dave. Yeah, it's the Thursday edition of the show, so we're going to be uh, talking about holidays and curling up on the couch, watching a nice holiday movie, eating some delicious snacks, and actually snacks is the part we want to talk about with Mary Mammoliti of Sna Kitchen <laughs> Snacks Confession. is always the part that I want to talk about. <laughs> exactly, period. Uh, also, we're speaking with Zoe McQuinn, and she's going to tell us more about the art gallery um, of or, or, the art gallery at the Manitoba Museum. This is part of our monthly science center future and we have a round table of course jim crisco is going to be sitting in as a guest on that and kelly mcdonald will bring up a bunch of topics that he wants us to talk about uh ramya excellent 2 p.m eastern time on ami tv that's kelly and ramya ramya don't go anywhere because alex Smythe, you've got a story about traffic congestion at montreal's airport 
Yeah, Dave, you played this at the top of the show as part of the uh, top news stories of the day. And this is something I really wanted to revisit because Trudeau Airport in Montreal is looking to reduce congestion for passengers at the airport. Lisa Laporte has the details. Gridlock on the road leading to Trudeau Airport routinely pushes passengers to get out of their vehicles and haul their bags hundreds of meters to its entrance. The Aeroport de Montréal says that by next summer, it will have set up two alternative drop-off and pick-up zones to divert car traffic from the airport's main entrance, with both served by a shuttle service. It says parking will also be free for roughly 40 minutes between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m., while a new airport parking lot with 20 2,800 spots is set to open early next year. Lisa Laporte, The Canadian Press. Now, all of those suggestions and, and uh, kind of plans sound very positive, but for me, I feel like the biggest issues come once passengers enter the terminal itself, when you're inside the airport. That's where I find the congestion is at its worst. So, but I wanted to bring this to the round table and get some perspective from everyone else. So, Ramia, we'll start with you on this. What is the biggest sore spot for you at Canadian airports? I can't pick all one. of it. Yeah. There's <laughs> the whole, so the many. Uh, because, it, like, and I've traveled quite a bit um, just on my own. So, getting to the airport mm -hmm. on my own, getting off the, like, out of the vehicle and into the airport on my own. And these are all separate elements, okay, of frustration. And then, once in, trying to find somebody to assist to get to the actual, uh, like, terminal to check in. Um, and then uh, also, you know, when you're a person with a disability, if it's already flagged on your, um, like, ticket, it, you can't always do virtual check-ins like nowadays a lot of us love the 24 within 24 hours check-in online and then go in and just zoom through right you can't always do that if you're a person with a physical disability because it the you know support person or other kinds of supports are needed so then you have to find a real person in real life and they have to recheck you in um, the entire process is very difficult from the beginning to up until you get someone to assist you through security. I find that I relax a little more once I've gotten that person um, who will take me through security to my gate and then everything is mostly smooth sailing until you get spit out at the other end and then have to do the reverse, right? Get out of the airport, et cetera, et cetera. But this first part is always so confusing. I will use Pearson, Toronto Pearson Airport, as the worst example because you are getting shoved out of your car. Someone is always honking at you. There's no time to stop and breathe. Take your baggage, go inside, find the doors, find a person. Like, you're just, the anxiety levels are so high yeah. going to airports for me. The, the Especially Terminal 1. Alex, you talked about this a couple of weeks ago in terms yeah. of your trip to Europe. Terminal 1 is just designed in a way to make your life miserable at Pearson. But I think quite obviously or quite self-evidently, security is always going to be a pain point at an airport because there's lines and there's hassles and how do you get there? Now you got to pull things out of your bag and put things back in your bag and oh, well, your belt fell out of the plastic thing and oh, my bag's been flagged so now you've got to stand over there mm -hmm. but they don't know that you're legally blind and you're like, where's my bag? Where am I supposed to go? And then someone's just <laughs> yelling, is this your bag? Is this your bag? And I'm like, who's you? What bag? Uh, sorry, 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 PTSD like coming like right out of my system Clearly. right now but Alex I'll tell you this if you really had to ask me about an individual sore spot or pain point that isn't necessarily the security mm. process or the security stage 
and this is most airports, but again, I'm going to put the Toronto lens on this because Pearson's Terminal 1 is designed so badly. Mm -hmm. Even if you do the online check-in, like Ramya discussed, if you have to check a bag, and I mean, Lord help you if you do, where on earth do I go with this? Where on earth do I go with this? Where is the actual bag drop point? Mm. Because they make it impossible to find. Yeah, so I was going to go along the same line. Security, yes, it's a frustration, and it's it's the ha biggest hassle, I think, where it's like, okay, as you mentioned, you have to go through your bag and things like that. So I... I think everyone kind of anticipates that and, and deals with that and, and that and prepare themselves for that. It, I agree with you, Dave. It's that like initial check-in bag drop-off process. Um, and it's not just Pearson Airport. Pearson, it, it can be horrendous for that because of the confusion on where is even the the kiosk for the the right uh, yeah, airline. Where's the line? Like airline. That. Where's the line? Yeah. And, yeah. yeah so yeah. like even when I went through uh, Air Canada on my most recent trip a few weeks ago, um, we needed some check-in assistance because I had talked about my my issues in transit with, with the flights that we had to go up to a, a gate and speak to a person. But there were people, uh, Air Canada reps around that would give you different directions or different suggestions where to go and then mm. trying to find a lineup, there wasn't even an entrance. The snake line was blocked off all, all ways. So it's like, it's that confusion on that initial part that really gets me frustrated. And it's the one I notice most consistently across multiple airports in Canada, not just Pearson. You know, the same frustrations with Montreal, Edmonton, Vancouver, Calgary. You know, I, I've seen that annoyance and in, in, especially when you, you introduce digital kiosks and things like that. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of frustration on that first side. Once you get through that and I'm going through security, okay, yeah, maybe a long line. Oh, I got to take my, my tablet or laptop out of my bag. I'm prepared for that, at least. It's, it's the first part where you're never quite prepared how bad it's going to be. Yeah, lay these yeah. things out in semicircles, not rectangles. Like, that's, I think, mm -hmm. what gets me about some of these airports, when it's just a series of rectangles. So as, as you put it, Alex, lines are snaking, but it's unclear what they're snaking for or where they're going, mm -hmm. right, Ramya? Yeah, exactly. And that's why, you know, there's so many nowadays at least so many people so many options where you can i'm talking specifically for blind or low vision people where you can call up ira or um, figure out other ways to travel independently to and through the airport i am not one of these people because i need somebody who knows what the heck they're doing like pearson as you said both of you said is not designed to make things easy or straightforward or even memorizable uh, from arrivals to departure from terminal one to terminal three it's just uh, like completely um, it, it, there's no rhyme or reason for anything I find yeah. it, like even with some of the biggest airlines like Air Canada you're not sure what you're lining up for what this person is like I've waited in the wrong lineup and that oh, was yeah. somebody from the airport telling me this is where you need to mm -hmm. wait yeah and uh, end up being wrong I, I, I want to go back to Montreal here and some of these policies Alex because I do think I do think on its face this is a good idea, right? You're trying to limit congestion right in front of the airport or in the pickup spots. Fantastic, wonderful, top tier. I don't know, Alex, if I trust an airport to run an official shuttle service from a satellite parking lot. Like, like I'll say that much. Oh, go to the drop-off parking lot. And now I need to wait in another line to cram myself in another place with a million bags. I, I just, I feel like there's uh, room for disaster here. 
Yeah, well, and, and Toronto Pearson has had this uh, for many years, the park and fly as it's known. And I used to take it um, a lot more when when I was younger and traveling with a family, you know, it, it, because it's cheaper to park in those satellite yeah, yeah. Uh, lots and spending the whole week in the, in the nearby, uh, like, um, parking lot across the the three-lane road or five-lane road from the airport itself. So it's it, it's been something that's been in in operation, at least at, at Pearson, the, the, that I'm the, familiar this with. This is a but, little different, though, right? This is a little yeah. bit different because the park and fly is sort of a private service that you're paying for. Yes. This is the yeah. airport individually running a mandatory or what will probably eventually be a mandatory drop-off or pickup zone. And that's what I was going to get to. It's how is this going to be translated and really be effective for Montreal? Because it seems also just in, in that report, just as uh, uh, Lisa described, it's 100 feet that uh, people are walking and based on getting out yeah. of their vehicles. This seems to be much more of a configuration of how the airport is set up and the location it's in and how that is causing and contributing problems. I think this is going to be rough, at least for the first little while as it gets settled. Instead of stuck in congestion coming off the off-ramp going yes. into the airport, you're now going to be stuck in congestion on the shuttle with people smelling bad and <laughs> shoving you at Ramya. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. It's just more uh, ways for you to be running late or running out of time yeah. or another reason to rush to the airport because now you have to go from the parking lot <laughs> to the front doors. I don't know, man. This reminds me of like, you know, the bus, the city bus services is in Sri Lanka, where if you don't know how to move fast, if you don't know how to hop on and off quickly and you're not able to, like that's disability awareness or any other kind of thing where you need just an extra bit of time or extra bit of assistance or support, the airport place i mean airport really feels like the wrong place for you not all airports but the big ones especially like the ones we're talking about um pearson and the one in montreal sounds like uh, the toronto streetcar the experience of getting on the uh, public yeah. transit in uh, sri lanka there all right let's be a uh, quick on this one gang experts will tell you the best time to fly during the day is first thing in the morning the earlier you get there the earlier you get out the less likely you already run into travel troubles however alex my personal preference travel in the middle of the day Mm, I, I, it depends where you're going. If you're going uh, far distances and, and calculating in those time zones, I actually like traveling towards at night, maybe uh, not 9, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. I like that travel time. Airports are quieter. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll give you that one, the after-dinner rush. Ramya, what about you? Yeah, either first thing in the morning, like super early, like a 5 a.m. flight, or last thing at night. I don't like dividing my day into it. it it's more of the mental, like the anxiety of it. I don't like um, having to plan half for a bit of my day in the beginning and mm. then think about trying to get to the airport and all that stuff in the middle of the day and then feel like I'm missing part of my vacation on the other no, end because no, no, no. you guys you yeah. guys you guys are wrong you guys are wrong on this the middle, <laughs> the middle of the day allows you to sleep in the day you depart for where you're going and it allows you to what? stay like till the absolute last second to check out of your hotel and then take you a three and then take a two o'clock. oh my well the, because I because I schedule it late enough that I'm not anxious <laughs> about my alarm clock going off all night. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Ramya, Alex, thank you for this. Have a great day. I am off tomorrow. Alex Smythe will drive this train as part of the Friday news panel until I hang out with you on Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, 
Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.